Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events, as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our scripture this morning for meditation comes from Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as David called to you in the wilderness, we call to you in need of your favor and salvation. You give the relief that we need. No other in this world can supply it. We may be fooled by the ways of the world for a time, but those who truly know you, Lord, know that we need your spirit within us to navigate the wilderness. When we are in distress, we cry out, and you hear us. Hear our prayers and petitions this morning as we seek to lift up your name and bring you glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Our To the Word reading uh, led us into Job this week. We've gotten in a few chapters into Job. Um, I was struck a little bit as we're reading through Job 1 as we came across that earlier this week. I'm just going to read portions of that, about verses 13 through 22, if you want to follow along. Job 1, verses 13 through 22. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said that the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So I don't know how many times I've read Job 1, but just that, that statement alone, that then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped, and then for him to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Many of us are familiar with this story of Job. I think it's a bit amazing if you read through this carefully as the account of the devastation that he incurred to his property, his family, and then eventually his own health. And then he recalls the words, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think some of you might be able to sympathize with me as I often get some maybe a mild illness or a struggle with work and then I'm having a hard time managing all these blessings that God has given me. And then I say in my heart, 
Lord, please make it easier. This is hard. I will confess that this is often the heart, my heart lately, I think, just with life. Home life, responsibilities, work life, it can be hard. And, of course, I probably need to put a disclaimer out there and recognize that these things are hard at times. And they're not always insignificant. However, when I compare myself to the Lord's servant Job, whom he handed over to Satan to sift like wheat, what do I think? Well, I feel greatly humbled first and wonder what my response might be if maybe even a tenth of the affliction that Job had were to strike me. Could I say, blessed be the name of the Lord? I sure hope so. Yet my confidence is not very high. I know my sinful heart. But how do we gain confidence in this area? I think that we can gain confidence in this area through practice. We need to practice the saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. And it helps if we start small in practicing these things. But if we practice this in our lives, we'll remember to hold loosely onto the things of this world that can disappear like a vapor and realize that our own lives can disappear in the same manner. So we must cling to faith in Jesus for our sustenance and fulfillment. We don't need to become monks in a monastery in some remote place, but we do need to understand that our worldly possessions are a blessing from God, but they can also be a hindrance if proper perspectives are not kept. So we need a right perspective. We need to remember that God blesses us, and that yet if we cling too tightly to these things, our hearts will stray from the Holy One. With this in mind, let us come to God in prayer. As you are enabled, as you are able, kneel with me in corporate confession as I read a prayer of repentance from Charles Spurgeon. Please rise as we for the assurance of pardon. Colossians two, thirteen and fourteen says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. With him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. People of God, hear the good news and believe your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. morning. Our text for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. The the sermon text is verses 7 through 16, but I'm going to start the beginning of chapter 4 for some context. These are the words of God. I therefore beseech the, Lord, the bese- I, sorry. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word as we come before you in worship. Please bless the preaching of your word. Open our ears and our hearts to receive it. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. 
Well, thank you for the welcome this morning. It is a joy to see you all again. It's been a few months, and some things have changed. We have a new one. There's some other new ones here, and it is really exciting. Wonderful to see this body grow and see your faithfulness uh, over time, and then to come back and, and worship with you again. I have been, uh, when I have come down, I've been preaching through the book of Ephesians and um, intend to just continue carrying on as I have opportunity to be down here. Um, if you recall, uh, one of the things that I have highlighted uh, time and time again as we've gone through Ephesians is uh, the basic structure of the book. You remember that the first three chapters of the book are all about the things that Christians need to believe. And this is a pattern that Paul sets out actually in many of his letters to the churches. The first part of the book is, is laying the doctrinal foundation of what Christians need to believe. And then the second half or second section of the book tends to be more of the practical application of that belief. And that's very true in Ephesians, and it's really cleanly divided in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about the credenda, the things to be believed, the foundation of what Christians need to put their faith in, uh, or need to believe as they put their faith in Christ. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the agenda, the things to be done, things that Christians need to walk in. These are the works that, that God has set before them to walk in. We see this most clearly as we look at chapter 4, verse 1 where you have this uh, time where Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of Christ. It's sort of the hinge of the whole book. That's the, the hinge on which the book of Ephesians folds, folds up over. And so having laid the foundation of what Christians need to believe in chapters 1, 2, and 3, one of the things that we see is that, um, or one of the primary tenets of that faith, one of those things to be believed is the unity that believers have in Christ. Paul emphasizes that the blood of Christ is so strong as to bring Jew and Gentile together as one new man. He says this in chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16, if you want to look at that. Uh, the, the division between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament times was, um, was so stark. So, um, they, they were divided so far from one another. The, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as these dirty people. They were dogs. They would spit when they would refer to the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles, generally speaking. And the Gentiles basically returned in kind. They thought the Jews were this weird, stuck-up, prudish, um, goofy group of people that had all these laws and, and followed them to serve this, God, this one God. They didn't serve lots of gods. They served this one God. They're very... Um, uh, they're basically a bunch of bigots because they only believe in one God and not all of these other gods. That's the sort of division that you have between Jew and Gentile. But the blood of Christ is strong enough to bring those people together into one new man. Amen. And even more than that, the blood of Christ is strong enough to reconcile that one new man with God. He's able to reconcile these people who have, if, if the division between Jew and Gentile is stark, how much more is the division between sinful man and righteous God? And yet the blood of Christ is strong enough to unite us with the Father. So that's one of the things that Paul emphasizes in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then in this second half of the letter, Paul begins by exhorting believers to walk worthy of their calling. This is the beginning of chapter 4. And particularly to endeavor or to strive or to work to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so Paul is saying here that there is an objective unity that's been given to God's people. If you have the Spirit, if you've been baptized into Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you have unity with all the others that do so. There's this foundational objective unity that we participate in. And yet, as we read through chapter 4, it becomes evident, I think, fairly quickly that Paul has two different types of unity in view. There's actually two kinds of unity that Paul is talking about in chapter 4. And the difference is very important for us to grasp. And so if you look at the beginning of our, our sermon text this morning, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Let me read these for you again. So Paul has just said that we are to work to keep the unity of the Spirit. He goes through that list of one body, one baptism, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God. All of this one, 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 one. This is the unity that we have in the Spirit. And then verse 7, but to each one of us, to each of us individually, to each one of us separately, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
And then Paul quotes from or uh, alludes to uh, Psalm 68, and he says, When he ascended on high, that is, when Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. So what are these gifts that Christ has given to his people? Obviously, the first and foremost gift is the salvation that he gives, uh, provides for his people, for his church, but also for you individually as Christians. You are saved as part of God's people, and you are saved individually. That is very important for us to see and to recognize. But there's other gifts that that I think Paul is speaking about here, not just this gift of salvation. King Jesus uh, apportions these gifts as a result of his victorious resurrection and ascension. That's That's why Paul's quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm about the victories of God's people, of God as he leads his people. It's a psalm of David, um, and it's, uh, incidentally, it was one of the psalms that the Huguenots, the persecuted Christians in the, um, the time of the Reformation in France, would sing, the, the Christian, the Protestant army, would sing this song as they were marching into battle, sing Psalm 68. It was their, it was their war psalm. It's a psalm of the victory of God as he leads his people into battle. And this is what Paul pulls from when he's talking about the gifts that Christ has given to his people. King Jesus, the one who descended to save the world, as we know, he came, he took on flesh, he descended from heaven to to save his people. But not only that, he descended into the lower parts of the earth in his death and in his burial. And not only that, he descended, as we say in the creed and as scripture teaches us, he descended into Hades to deliver those saints from that place, of, uh, that, that place of keeping until he would come to take them up into heaven with the Father then. Uh, there's lots of debates among uh, commentaries about wh- which exactly this descent is referring to. Is it talking about the incarnation where Jesus comes from heaven, descends to earth in his incarnation, or descends in his burial, or descends in his going down into Hades to preach to the, to the souls that were there? Um, and in one sense, I don't think it matters all that much. They all amount to the same thing. Christ's descent in order to save his people, and then he ascends. And we see that in this verse. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then Paul comments on that. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? When it says that he led captivity captive, this, is, this would be indicating some sort of a triumphal procession displaying his conquest. Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter 2, where Christ has put down all of his enemies, disarmed them, and then led them in a triumphal procession. This is what the Romans would do. When they would conquer a people, they would then take the captives of that, of, uh, um, from the war, uh, from that tribe that they conquered, and then parade them through the streets of Rome. And it was this shameful thing for the um, captives and this victorious procession for the victors. And this is what Paul is alluding to. This is what Christ has done with his captives. He has put them to shame. He's put his enemies down. And he has led them uh, by taking captivity captive. Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And he accomplished this when he died and then was raised from the dead. But But he also conquered not just sin, death, and the devil, but he also conquered you. He conquered us. By delivering us from our sins. We were dead in our sins. We were one kind of people and then Christ made us alive and conquered us. You've been conquered by Christ. This is why Paul also says in Romans chapter 6 that we are now slaves of Christ. Having been slaves to sin and death, we are now slaves to God. And thus he is our Lord. Having taken us captive, he makes us his own. And then like a good king, he bestows gifts on us. This is what Christ does. He goes and he conquers a people. But instead of just making them slaves like the Romans would have and putting them, putting them to slave labor, no, Christ comes and he, makes, he takes captives and he makes them his slaves so that he can make them sons, so that he can give gifts to them like a good father, like a good king. Another aside here, this is a helpful way, I think, um, one way to read and to sing the imprecatory psalms that we see in Scripture. Psalms that talk about God or his people going out and conquering others. One of the primary ways that God conquers is by turning his enemies into his friends. This is how God conquers. Some he does put down, and some he does put down and send to eternal damnation. But many he conquers by turning to himself, by making them his people. In this passage, um, 
Paul only mentions particularly a handful of these gifts that he's referring to. There's other parts of Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts, and, and there's, um, there's no one list in Scripture. I've, that's one of the things I find interesting. So you can go to different passages and see different lists, and they line up in different ways. But in this particular passage, he, he only mentions a couple. And these are particular gifts that come with an appointment from Christ himself. Christ has appointed certain offices in his church for the particular purpose of equipping his saints for the work that he has called those saints to do. We see this in verse 11. Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Um, the apostles and prophets that Paul mentions here, he, he also mentions apostles and prophets twice in the first half of Ephesians. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, we've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then again in chapter 3, verse 5, um, this mystery that was in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So I think here when Paul says... Um, Christ gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets. He's talking primarily about the 12 apostles, including Paul, and the, the other people, the other um, disciples that were given particular inspiration to write the word of God. I think that's primarily who Paul has in view here as the apostles and prophets. So prophets, and, and this is important to remember also, prophets in scripture does not mean primarily somebody who predicts the future. That's not primarily what a prophet does. That's not what the word means in Scripture. Primarily, a prophet is somebody who declares the word of God. And often, that is included with that is a statement of what is going to come. But someone who authoritatively declares the word of God in Scripture is considered a prophet. This is why Abraham is a prophet. He's called a prophet, but he never predicted anything. But he is called and identified as a prophet. Okay, so the apostles and prophets are those who laid the foundation um, in, in the word of God and in the teaching, taking the direct teaching, the words of Jesus, and then giving it to his church. And that's why I also think that apostles and prophets, uh, this is not a particular gift that God gives now in the same way. This is a particular gift that God gave at that time to identify these particular people authoritatively to establish the word of God. And so now we have this as the authoritative word of God, and this is our apostles and prophets. We don't, we don't have men or individuals as apostles and prophets now because we have this. Right? This, this is what they were up to. They were establishing this, and so we have this instead. Paul identifies also um, evangelists and then pastors and teachers. Um, again, there's a lot of uh, debate in the commentaries about who exactly these are referring to. One way to think about this, I find this helpful, and I didn't come up with this analogy, but if we take the analogy of, from chapter 2 of Paul building up a household of God. And so again, in chapter 2, Paul says, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So if we take that analogy that, that we as the people of God are being built up into a temple, into the household of God, and the foundation is the apostles and prophets, Christ is the cornerstone, well, then think of evangelists as those that are bringing in the materials. They're bringing in the lumber. And then pastors and teachers are the contractors putting it all together, putting together the scaffolding and, and erecting the frame of this house. I think that's a helpful way to, to think about these gifts that, that Paul is identifying here. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation. The evangelists bring in the materials. Right, They're out declaring the gospel to the world in a different way than, uh, than maybe pastors and teachers might be. And they're bringing in those materials, and then the pastors and teachers are building up this and framing this house. But these are particular gifts that, God is, that Christ has given to these people, again, for a particular purpose. All of, these, uh, all of these people participate in giving the word to the saints. They're all involved in the ministry of the word for the particular purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. If you stop and think about that phrase, that, that might seem odd to you. The work of ministry is not something that pastors do. The work of ministry is not something that elders do in this passage. 
Who does the work of ministry in this passage? It's the saints. It's all of you. You are involved in the work of ministry. You have been called to a work of ministry. And the job of your pastors and elders is to equip you to then go and do that work of ministry. So the work of ministry is not something that is reserved for people who are employed by a church. Now, at the same time, I think it can be helpful to, just, to say, um, you know, so when I'm studying to become a pastor, people would ask me what you're doing, and I'm, I'm intending to, be, uh, to go into the ministry. I think it's, it's fine to describe it that way, because Paul describes himself as a minister of the gospel. But we need to remember that it's not just pastors and elders, it's not just um, people that are going into ministry, quote-unquote, that are doing the work of ministry. It's all of the saints. If you are a Christian, you are called to the work of ministry. What does this mean, though? Everything that you can, everything that you do, and everything that you can do should be informed by the Word of God. Everything that you do, in everything that you do, you are standing on the Word of God and applying it to whatever is right in front of you. This is why in Psalm 119 it says that the Word of God is a lamp for your feet. Why? Because you need to go and do the work of ministry. And so you need, to, you need God's word to guide you as you go and do the work that God has set before you to do. Ephesians 6 tells us that the word of God is a sword for your fight. Are, are you involved in um, battles against the world of flesh and the devil in your day-to-day life? Absolutely. And so how do you do that work of ministry? You do that work of ministry by wielding the sword. Matthew 4 and 1 Peter 2 describe for us that the word of God is sustenance for your life and sustenance for your growth. Jesus, quoting from the Old Testament, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the word is a lamp for your feet, it's a sword for your fight, and it's sustenance for your daily life and growth. And so in everything that you do then, you go and you apply this word to whatever's right in front of you. You go and you do the work of ministry. Christ gave gifts to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that, they, so that those gifts and those people bearing those gifts would be used to equip the saints. And he gives gifts so that they can use those gifts to equip the saints. And this, I think, is also a pattern for us. What is your work of ministry? Well, you're supposed to take what God has given you and you're to use it to build up the body of Christ. You're to use it in whatever capacity you find yourself in. You're to use it with whatever is right in front of you. Um, Proverbs 18.1 says that a man who isolates himself rages against all reason. Because he's, one of the reasons for this is because God has given him gifts to go and build up the body, to grow the community of the church, to, to bless the people of God, to bless the world, and he's isolating himself. He's raging against all reason. So Christ gave these gifts so that then, and he gives you gifts so that you can then go and give them to others and give what you have been given away. And in in the midst of all of this, Paul has an end goal in view. This, um, pastors and teachers and, and the apostles and prophets and evangelists have been given these gifts for the purpose of equipping the saints And that equipping is for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body. But there's an end goal in view here in verse 13. He says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. Perfect not meaning pristine, but perfect meaning complete. Mature. What is this unity that Paul's talking about here? It's, I think it's very clearly a unity that we don't yet have. It's a unity that we don't yet have. We're not there yet. So I think this is, it's the same word, but I think the context shows that it's actually a different thing, a different unity than what Paul's talking about at the beginning of chapter 4. We have, and we're supposed to strive for the unity of the Spirit, and in doing so, in doing the work of ministry... God is growing us up into this final unity when we all come to the full knowledge of God, the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. 
And this, this distinction is important. We see this objective unity that Christians have in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But this unity is not uniformity. We talked about this last time I was down here preaching. This unity is not uniformity. It's not that we all are, Christians are this cookie cutter thing and we're all supposed to look alike and act exactly alike. No, this, this is why, part of the reason why God, Christ gives different gifts. Why he gives to each of us a particular gift according to his own measure. We are united, but we are not uniform because God delights in diversity, just as he delights in unity. God loves to take many distinct things and make one from them. And then he likes to take that one and separate it out and grow it so that he can make more. God loves to do this while preserving both the, the, both the togetherness and the disparateness of that body. Why does he do this? Why does he delight in this? He delights in unity and diversity because it reflects who he is. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons and one God. What? Right, when we stop and we think about the Trinity, it really should hurt your head a little bit. Because it's so, it's, it's different than we are. It's completely other than we are. It's not something we can fully comprehend. If God, somebody once said, if God could be fully comprehensible, he would no longer be God. So, but this, this triune nature of God works itself out in the way that he has constructed the world. It's clear as you look at creation, you look at the way that God works, that he loves unity and diversity at the same time. Why? Because he is, he is the, the prime unity and diversity. The unity of Godhead and diversity of persons. So this makes perfect sense then why he delights in this for his church as well. We are one body, but we are also distinct members of that body. As distinct members, Christ has given to each of us particular grace. And this is because we are both together as the church, but also individually, we are his workmanship. Remember, this is what Paul says at, in, in chapter 2. You have been... Um, we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has set before you to do. We are all his workmanship together and individually, and so he gives us grace to walk in those works that he has set right before us. And this is true, not just for individual persons in the church, but also for the church institutionally. This is one of the things I think that... that um, bothers a lot of people is when we look around and we see the what appears to be the disunity of the global church you look around and you see these great divisions in the church you've got the roman catholic church and the protestant church and the eastern orthodox church and the russian orthodox church and and on and on and on and then within all of those churches some of them claim to be really really unified but they're not being honest they really are lots of divisions and denominations in all of those bodies and we look at that, and, and it can be disheartening. Why is there so much division within the church? Well, some of it is the result of sin. Some of it is the result of bad doctrine, false teaching. And so those divisions and separations are necessary. But some of it, and some of it is, is driven by um, um, sin like greed and envy and backbiting and pride. We see that when, you, when we have a church split oftentimes, there's a lot of sin involved, usually from both sides. But we need to remember the distinction that Paul shows in talking about unity in two different ways. There really is an objective unity that we share in Christ. This one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is a unity to be acknowledged and entered into and practiced. It's actually not a unity that you can create. But it is a unity that you can enjoy, that you can enter into. Um, it's a unity that you can keep, that, that you are commanded by, the, by Scripture to keep, to endeavor to keep that. It's something you have that you need to maintain. It's been given to you in Christ, and then you're called to maintain it. But the diversity of the body means that there is a unity that we don't have and that we need to grow up in. And so I think there are, um, as we look at the, the diversity of the global body of Christ— there's part of it that we should not be disheartened about. 
in the same way that we're not disheartened about the fact that a, a, a five-year-old is not accomplishing things that an 18-year-old should. We're not disheartened by that. We don't bemoan the fact that a, that a five-year-old isn't driving a car yet. We're usually very grateful, right? Why? Because he's not supposed to yet. He doesn't have the control, the skills, the ability, the, the length of legs, right? He's, he's not able to yet. And if he did, it would be disastrous. Well, if, if we want the body of Christ to be this one united perfect whole right now and we try to grasp for that, it's disastrous. It's not something that we can accomplish. Now, at the same time, we have to keep this other unity and we do have to, to seek to maintain that. But it's going to look like unity and diversity, both individually and institutionally. We should strive to keep the unity that is based on primary things, on first principles, on the, on the basic tenets of the gospel. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet um, as the people of God doctrinally. We're not there yet in our practice. Um, we're not there yet to think that we should and can have this perfect unity of all of the churches. And when we grasp for that, um, when, when people emphasize an ecumenicism that seeks to just make everybody one and, and the same, it is always disastrous. I read a book a couple years ago about the, um, the development of Presbyterianism. So you all are now Presbyterians, or at least you're in a Presbyterian church, right? But there's this development of Presbyterianism in America, over the, so from 1700 or so to the present. And it is just this great tree of splits and branches and you know, all these different denominations that come out of it. And some of it is because of sin and, and um, really awful division. Um, and some of it is because of doctrinal stuff. And, and most often, the doctrinal stuff comes about because one group wants to be really ecumenical. They really want to join with all these other denominations and partner with them in these things. And in order to do so, they have to sacrifice core beliefs. They have to compromise on the gospel in many ways. And so then a division happens because there's a group of people that aren't going to do that. And this, the one group goes and joins this, um, the, the sort of big picture, big church, big tent thing. And the other group ends up splitting off on their own. Now, in, in many ways, that is a result of sin, but I think we should see that part of the sin sometimes is trying to grasp for something that's not ours yet. Incidentally, this is what Adam and Eve did, right? God did not forbid them from eating from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil forever. I think there's arguments to, as you look at Scripture, there's a case to be made that he intended to give it to them, but they grasped for it in their immaturity. They grasped for it when it wasn't theirs and plunged the human race into sin. We do the same thing, I think, when we grasp for this second kind of final unity when it's not something that we can create. When we try to, it ruins things. This is the kind of unity that comes with maturity and it is something that only God can bring us to. And so... The work of ministry that you are to be equipped for is related to that, though. The work of ministry that you are to be equipped for is to live out the gospel, living out your faith and calling us Christians in whatever you do, wherever you find yourself, whatever works God has set before you in that particular moment, you are to live out your faith. And this is to be done pursuing the unity of of the spirit, that first kind of unity, recognizing the fact that the final unity is not accomplished. God uses our striving to keep the first kind of unity to build up his people into that second kind of unity. God actually uses your work seeking to keep this first kind of unity as part of how he grows the church up into this second kind of unity. The second kind of unity that will only be realized when he presents the church to the Son as a spotless bride. We're not there yet, but we do get to practice. We do get to practice for that kind of unity. Where do we practice this? You practice this in your friendships, in your business deals, in your marriage, in your family, 
in your church community. This is what it means. This is why we confess our sins. Why do we, as Christians, need to confess our sins? We, we know, we understand on the one hand that it's because we are sinners, we serve a righteous God, He sent His Son to die for us, we confess our sins to acknowledge that what we have done is against His holy law, and we ask His forgiveness to be brought back into fellowship with Him because of the union we have with Him in Christ. I think we understand that, generally speaking. But we also need to remember that when you are in sin, you are not only not in fellowship with the Father, you're not in fellowship with His bride, with His people. And so when you are in sin, even if your sin is not directly affecting them, you, you are not keeping the unity of the Spirit. You can't keep the unity of the Spirit and be in sin. You can't hold both of those things. This is very evident um, in, a, in a close personal relationship like between a husband and a wife. You can't act like you're unified and be at sin or in sin towards one another. It doesn't work. You can't have both. Or when you try to patch it over, you really know that it's just patched over. It's not real unity. God divides in such a way as to bring life. Right? We see this in creation. God's dividing um, heaven and earth. He's dividing the, the seas from the land, all to create this, this um, home for uh, people, for his creation. And then he takes, um, if you thought about this, just the way that God, it's just amazing, the way that God works in dividing and uniting, right? How did we all get here? Because God took a man, well, first he fashioned him by dividing him from the ground. Then he took that man and divided from the man a woman, and then he brought them back together and created a single cell, which then divides and grows and divides and grows and divides and grows. And then there's another one. And then there's a union and another division and a union and a division. And suddenly we have billions of people. This is how God works. He divides and then he reunites and he grows and he divides and he grows and he divides and he grows. We see this in, um, in, the, in the cosmic universe that God created. We see this in individuals as your own body, the cells of your body divide and grow and multiply. We see this in people as the human race has grown. This is how God works. God divides in such a way as to bring life because he is, again, the, the perfect unity and diversity. Our sin also divides, but God divides in such a way as to bring life. Our sin divides and brings death. And it is this sort of striving for unity, striving for the unity of the Spirit by confessing your sins that's grounded in the teaching of the Word, rooted in Christ, that you have been equipped, equipped with. It is this kind of striving for unity that keeps us from being blown about and deceived by every wind of doctrine. This is what Paul gets to in verse 14. You're to be equipped as saints so that you should no longer be children, so that you should be growing up in your faith, so you should be growing up into maturity and not be tossed about and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Why is it that over the past two years, the church has been completely duped? Why? Because the church... Has, has decided to dwell in its immaturity and won't confess its sins. I remember talking to um, Jim Wilson, who was uh, an evangelist and pastor for probably 70 or 80 years. And I asked him, what, would it, what does it take to bring uh, reformation and revival in America? And without missing a beat, he says, Christians need to confess their sins. Because it's the lack of confessing your sins, acknowledging your sins, owning your sins, taking responsibility for your sins before God that divides. Why is there division in your family? Why is there division between you and your brother? Why is there division between you and your sister? Why is there division between you and your husband or you and your wife? Why is there division between you and your extended family? The first place you should look is, is it because of my sin? 
Have I not acknowledged my sin before God and confessed it to him? That's the first place we look. And when Christians begin behaving this way, offering their lives before God, walking in this work of ministry, (laughs) you, you want to go do ministry? Do ministry in your own heart first. Preach the gospel to your own heart first. Confess your own sins first. Because when you do that, God grants forgiveness, He grants peace, and He grants this unity of the Spirit. This is what holds God's people together. This is what holds families together. This is what holds churches together. If you try to grasp for unity in any other way, it will all fall apart. It will blow the doors off. But if you, if you endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit by confessing your sin, by putting your faith in Christ, by acknowledging one Lord, one faith, one baptism, this is how unity is achieved. This is how it is kept. By acknowledging these things, by confessing our sins, walking by faith in those works that God has set before you to do. So what is your ministry? You, the saints, the people of God, you are called to the work of ministry. What is your ministry? It doesn't have to have some fun church name that has an acronym. It's it's what's right in front of you. Moms, you know exactly what your ministry is. Dads, your ministry is your family, your kids, and your workplace. It's your relationships with family and friends and neighbors. What is your ministry? It's whatever's right in front of you. Whatever's right in front of you, that's your ministry. The rest of Ephesians, the rest of the book of Ephesians, gets into even more particulars of what it means to walk worthy of our calling as Christians. But all of those commands that Paul's going to give, he gets into the nitty-gritty, talking to husbands and wives and slaves and masters and children, what their role is in the home. But all of those commands come in the context of the unity that Christians have and the unity that the Lord is growing us up into. All of those commands come in the context of these two different kinds of unity. The unity that you have, that, you're, that you are commanded to maintain, to tend to, like a garden, right? Like, like a garden that you don't have to do anything with it, and what happens? Overgrown, covered with weeds, right? If you're not tending to it, that's the problem. So we need to be weeding out our unity, right? And that means weeding out the sin that divides us. So we're to keep that, and we're to know and acknowledge that God is using that to grow us up into this other kind of final, complete unity. And so it's that, it's that, that's the context for the rest of the agenda. That's the context for the rest of the things that Paul is going to command God's people to do. Believers are to be individually growing up and being built up in Christ, equipped by the preaching of the word so that they can then supply to the rest of the body what God has given to them. You're to take what's been given to you this morning and every Lord's Day, and as you read the word and as your elders counsel you, you're to take that and then you're to turn around and use it to bless the body. And we're to do this so that we can Um, supply to the body all that God has given to us. Each of us must repent of our own sins, learning to walk this way and not that way, um, as we'll see in the next section of Ephesians, to put off the old man and to put on the new man, growing and understanding what that means and doing it all by the grace that our head, Christ, supplies. We're a body, and the only way that we can work as a body is if we get the instructions from the head. He's the one that unites us together and supplies all of our needs. And as we do this work, God uses it to build up the body of Christ and to grow it into this complete, mature, finished body. And the road from here to there is all kinds of messy. And so one of the things Christians need to learn to do is embrace that messiness because God is using it. God is using that messiness. Repent of the sin, confess the sin, get the sin out of there, but then embrace the messiness because this is what God is using to build you up into a perfect man. And so the charge to you is to go and do the work of ministry that is right before you, this ministry that your risen and ascended king has given to you. 
That's his commission to you. Whatever is right in front of you this week, that's your commission from Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. We thank you that Jesus descended for us, that he arose from the dead, and that he led captivity captive, including us. Father, teach us to strive more to embrace the unity and to keep the unity that we have in Christ and to do so without grasping for the final unity that that we trust you are building us up into. Father, give us grace to practice this in everything that you set before us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Foundationally, unity in Christ is accomplished by Christ being broken for us. If it's not for Christ being broken for us, then we have no unity in him. And this is one of the things that is set before you at the Lord's Supper every week as we eat the bread, Christ's broken body, and as we drink the wine, Christ's shed blood. Christ came to die for his people. He gave his life for those that he would save. He was broken so that we might be made whole in him. We have a picture of this, as I alluded to in the sermon in the creation story. God fashions the man out of the dust, and then he puts Adam in a death-like sleep. And he sheds Adam's blood. And he breaks his body so that he might fashion the woman from the man's side. And then, because Adam was broken and his life was laid down for the life of Eve, they are brought together in the union of marriage. This is a picture of the gospel for us. And it is a gospel that the people of God are to believe and then to imitate. Here at the Lord's table, we are reminded that Christ said, My life for yours. And as we partake of his broken body, one of the things that you are declaring to the other members of his body is the same. As you eat the bread and as you drink the wine, what you are saying to these people here is my life for yours. And so to all who have been baptized into Christ, come and lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So here's the charge. Remember that there are two kinds of unity. The first is an objective reality that you are charged to keep, to preserve. And the first step is to be quick to confess your own sins because your sin is divisive and you can get back in fellowship just as fast as you got out of it. The second kind of unity is one that you cannot achieve and so do not grasp for it. There is no perfect church yet, including this one, and there will not be until God has finished his work in us. But in keeping the first kind of unity and doing the work of ministry that God sets right in front of you, We trust God to be working in us and growing us up into that second kind of unity. Receive now the benediction from your Lord, which I don't have in front of me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.